Gordon's alive! Here's some gin. Gordon's alive! Gordon's alive! Do people come up to you and ask you to constantly do those the, the, those big voice things that you're famous for? Yes. I'm thinking about one in particular. Uh, yes, yes, you're thinking of... Gordon's alive! You're thinking about that. That's yeah. the one I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> uh, Now, in the news this week, the polls continue to slide for Gordon Brown, and some people are saying he's dead and buried. But I think the opposite. I say, Gordon's alive! <laughs> Detective, thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball, and I'm joined by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel from Canada. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazing. I am really looking forward to this. Based on the banter before the show and first-time reactions, this is going to be one heck of a trip. Yes, yes, this is going to be a lot of fun. And I want to mention, this is our episode where we've, so far, we've done... Uh, starting back in November, we started doing kind of, well, actually started back in October. And the guests that we're bringing on today were the first uh, the first group to be a part of this. We did The Innocents in October with Matt and Jackson Rawlings from Father and Son Watch Horror. And they've returned with us today. In November, we did 2001 A Space Odyssey. We did Dark City in December. And so we're doing a movie today that will essentially form, uh, I guess, what you may call the longest pause... <laughs> that we've ever had on the show uh, in the episode of the innocence we due to some casting that was of actors that were in the innocence and then matt brought up that that actor was in another movie and the movie we're talking about today is flash gordon from 1980 and at that point jackson stops and says can i just talk about flash gordon for a minute at which point i kind of rudely put him on pause and said that. we'll have you back for an episode and so three months later here we are so uh, before we before we do this, here's the here's the clip <laughs> from the show, and then we'll jump in and we'll have Matt and Jackson introduce themselves again. I got to throw this in here because it's one of my uh, favorite bad movies of all time. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen 1980s Flash Gordon. Oh, yeah. Oh, Flash. Boy. Yeah. Man. I, love yeah. It. I have it on DVD. I, I, I like the oh. soundtrack. Give me the music. Oh, it's it's such a gloriously bad movie. I saw it with my dad when I was eight <laughs> years old in the theater. Um, 
he's Clytus. He's General Clytus. Mm-hmm. And- he is. He is. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Something I got to say about Flash Gordon, uh, and I don't get to talk about sci-fi movies often, but this is Phantom Galaxy, so I feel very at home. Well, let me stop you, too, for one second, Jackson, because now that that's come up, we're going to have you guys back on to talk Flash Gordon if you want. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be amazing. So so you can say whatever you want, but hold some back, because we're going to have you on. That's happening. You know what? I'll keep it. I'll sit on it, and and, uh, and we'll, we'll get back to it later. Jackson, you're the one that started this, so you introduce yourself first, and then Matt, go ahead. Do you hear that bus rolling over you, Jackson? (laughs) Yeah, great. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Jackson from the Father and Son Watch Horror Movies podcast. Um, We talk about horror movies, and uh, we love to watch sci-fi movies together. Um, That's actually the first first movies we bonded over were sci-fi, like Star Wars and Star Trek. Um, We used to watch the original series, Star Trek. And Flash Gordon was one of the movies we watched together. We didn't watch horror together too much, surprisingly, when I was like eight years old. Uh, But we did watch uh, sci-fi. And I first watched Flash Gordon when I would say I was like eight or nine. Uh, and I loved it. I mean, as far as I knew, Flash Gordon was just as hot a property as Star Wars or Star Trek. Uh, so now learning that it's a super cheesy, super campy thing that people watch for the entertainment value rather than it as a serious film, uh, I had to re-examine it. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you guys think, but uh, I had kind of a rude awakening this time around. <laughs> oh. Oh. I, oh, buddy. Yeah, I, I'm the one who exposed this to him. Uh, but to be fair, um, I first saw Flash Gordon on opening night, December 5th, 1980, in the theater. And it was my dad's idea. And I don't think my dad had wanted to go to a movie since John Wayne had died. Um, <laughs> but he wanted to go see this. And, and my sisters and my mom were gone. My mom used to own a clothing store. They were off on a shopping trip, buying trip. And we lived just right down the street from the theater. So we walked and saw Flash Gordon. And it wasn't until years later that I realized my dad was born in 1937. Of course he wanted to see Flash Gordon. He'd grown up with it. You know, he'd grown up with the comic strip and the serials and all the other kind of stuff. And But looking back on it, I remember him chuckling a lot. I'm not sure it was the tone he grew up with. <laughs> I was going to say, was your dad's feature attraction the two females in the... In the- no, no. He was, he was a big Flash Gordon... <laughs> Man, and I just remember walking out of the theater and he was still uh, chomping on some popcorn. He was just chuckling and shaking his head. So now I know what that meant. At the, when I was eight years old, I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, and we just, I just uh, uh, exposed it. I think the word you used, Matt. So I just exposed my children as well to this yes. over, the, yes, over yes. the weekend. And that'll be fun to talk about. But so, and it, so, it sounds interesting because you guys might be in a different place than you were. In October, when we were going to talk about it, so we'll see. Um, and then Bill has never seen it before until just yesterday. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, that was a cold opening. I didn't wa- do any research on it. I didn't do any previews. I didn't even watch a trailer. Didn't see anybody else's review of it. I wanted to go in absolutely cold because my only exposure to this one was kind of knowing the comic book Flash. I didn't. I'd never read it, but I knew of the character. And I knew the soundtrack, being a, a classic rock guy, the Queen song, you know, you couldn't get away with it doing it. But in terms of actual storyline, 
I didn't know a thing about it other than I knew there'd be ships and there'd be some cheesy fighting scenes and things, but I didn't know anything about the story. I went completely cold. And to be honest, I'm not going to get into my initial reactions other than it was more fun than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I had, I'd seen this when I was younger too. I remember watching it and my feelings on it sort of changed over, you know, I, you definitely, I think is a movie that if you see it as a kid, and then you see it later, you're going to have a different perspective. I think because of how it seems to have been made and who it's been made for, I will say something I did today, because I had the Blu-ray and I got the Blu-ray. It's not, it wasn't like a super nice Blu-ray. What happened is a few years ago, we were on vacation and we went to uh, the, we were at the beach and it was raining, pouring one day. And we went to Walmart sort of impromptu to pick up some things. And we decided, hey, let's pull some stuff out of the $5 blu-ray bin and and so this this isn't the first time the kids have seen it but they were so they were so much younger then i don't think they really remember it so i remember we we got that one out and watched it so today when i pulled up the blu-ray again just to see what special features were on it they had the first episode of the buster crab serial on there and it was actually really interesting to watch that because i think i'll be able to speak to a little bit you know what you were just saying like how the tone has changed and how maybe it hasn't changed between the thirties. Cause the first episode, the opening is almost identical to the opening of this film. They, they match it almost beat for beat, but you get a much better handle on what they were trying to do. You realize how so much of, I was surprised how much was similar. And then it really allowed you to kind of fill in the space and say, well, what were they trying to do? Because watching this movie, sometimes the question becomes, what are you playing at here? <laughs> And so to go before we go any further, I do want to kind of put it back in in Jackson's uh, uh, hand it back over to you, Jackson, and just do a a basic intro, if you will, of the movie and then kind of uh, as you perceived it this time through. Sure. Well, uh, as you said, it was a 1936 serial originally, and you can tell. Uh, just in the same way I think that Star Wars was inspired by serials, this has that same kind of campy, flashy tone, very fantasy-driven. It's just as much a fantasy as it is a sci-fi. Um, and uh, the, the, essential, the essential plot, I guess, if we want to get into that, and it is pretty loose, is that a football <laughs> player... Uh, named Flash Gordon and his friends, it says, although I would, I would argue that only one of them is his friend and the other is kind of an anti-hero if you think about it. They travel to the planet Mongo and find themselves fighting the tyranny of Ming the Merciless to save Earth. Uh, so quite a plot synopsis there. And yeah, I also watched the first episode of the serial and I was surprised as well. It's, it's pretty much beat for beat the same thing, although it is much more serious. Um, and uh, I, I feel like it's, I could see how this would be thrilling back in the 30s. It, it really does feel like a like a new, fresh take. And I can definitely see, see how it inspired uh, stuff like Star Wars. But um, yeah, beat for beat, you know, F- Flash takes off on a plane with Dale, um, who is his romantic uh, um, counterpart. And the plane crashes, or they parachute out of it in the serial. And they are confronted with Dr. Zarkov, a mad scientist who wants to take them into space. And then they meet Ming the Merciless. It's really just a, a series of scenes kind of strung together. It's set pieces. It's that classic, you know, 70s and 80s sci-fi thing where it's a, a, a story written around set pieces. They had sets designed. They had costume ideas. They had cool ideas for how characters could die. So they had to get there. 
And I think the thing that pushes this over the top, which is what we'll be talking about, I'm sure, a lot, is the soundtrack, because that's the most nostalgic part of it for me. And I think that's what really puts us over the edge into cult classic territory. Yes, I totally agree about that in terms of that you you have a very different movie without that soundtrack there. Now, let me ask you, did you still... Uh, did you enjoy this as much now or less? Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you thought it was a better movie this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I enjoyed it just as much through a different lens, though, because I've seen it three times now. I saw it once about a year ago and then once when I was when I was younger. And I think I enjoyed it unironically the first time I watched it. I thought it was just, like I said, you know, I'm young, and as far as I know, Flash Gordon's just as big and just as serious as Star Wars, because, you know, to my eyes, it's the same kind of thing. Um, it wasn't until later that I realized that Star Wars has a little bit more going for it than Flash Gordon does. But, um, yeah, I enjoyed it just as much. I mean, there are some lines in here that are genuinely funny, and I think they're supposed to be. I mean, there are some comedic lines that do land in this movie, but I think the lines that are the funniest are the ones that aren't supposed to be funny. Um, lots of ones from the Princess Aura are funny just because of the way they're delivered. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say I enjoyed it just as much, but for vastly different reasons. Yes, and I, I can see that. It's interesting when we get to the point where we kind of talk about the production of this, you have even the screenwriters and the director and everyone sort of giving different answers about that because it felt like at any given point it was different. At one point, we were trying to make a serious sort of, uh, not completely serious, but something more in the vein of, you know, at that point in time, you have Superman and things like that coming out, and Star Wars has already been made, and George Lucas actually was trying to make Flash Gordon initially, but the Laurentis still had the rights, and so he ultimately sort of backed off and said, I'm just going to do Star Wars. And But you're listening to the screenwriter that eventually ends up writing it. I mean, you look at all the different people that were involved with this. When you finally get down to the group of people that make the movie, they still seemed a little bit uncertain about what kind of movie they were actually making. And sometimes that shows up in the movie itself. Matt, what was, how are your feelings about it watching it? Uh, I assume you did you rewatch it again for this uh, before this? I did. In fact, I've got it on mute uh, on the background right now on Hulu. Um <clears throat> I, yeah, Jackson and I watched it. I watched it in the cinema. I watched it years later on uh, cable, and I've probably seen it six or seven times. And yeah, I like Jackson. When I was eight years old, I took it seriously. I thought it was great. Uh, there's a scene where Flash has to put his hand into this uh, like tree trunk with all these holes in it. I, I remember that freaking me out when I was eight years old. You know, years later, I was like, "Wait a minute, what? What's going on here?" Um, but now I've kind of, and maybe it is complete, as Joel Robertson would say, C and D. Uh, but I have fun with it. I, I just have a blast with it. It's not, it, it's goofy. It's weird. It was a troubled production. All kinds of weird stuff was going on there. But um, I still have fun with it. I, I kind of feel the same way that Seth MacFarlane does about it, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then um, I, I get my thoughts a minute, but... Bill, how about you? Because this is the first viewing for Bill. So Bill doesn't have any C&D one would expect with this particular movie. So, No, see, I went in open-minded because I really wanted, honestly, just to dig in and see what it was all about. And after, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you kind of not only appreciate that style of film production, the kind of 
uh, I wouldn't say slap shot film production. It was meant, it obviously had a decent budget. <clears throat> Sorry. It had a decent budget and it was meant to look cheesier than the actual work, working um, stage production would allow it to be. Like, you, it's looked to meant worse to be worse than it actually, they had the money to make it worse. So it was meant to look a certain way. And as soon as I saw about 15 minutes of it, there were two films that popped into my head that I thought, okay, was this before or after Airplane? Because <laughs> it's after quite, Airplane. Because it's it's it, it was after because it's kind of got a bit of that vibe to it. Not quite as slapsticky, but you kind of see it in in the film production. The other movie that popped out right away was Spaceballs. <laughs> and you watch this, and then you kind of see how Ming, um, not Ming, how um, uh, uh, who's the Wingard character's name? Clytus. Clytus. And then you look at one of the guys on Spaceballs, you're like, bang on. He took exactly from... So you can kind of see that sense and style, but it says something about Flash Gordon because of the impact it had on other films subsequent to follow. So when I first watched this, I could tell there's a sense of fun. And it's one of those films where you know dad is bringing his kids to this movie to see it. So there's a little bit of adult humor that goes above the kid. But there's enough action and silliness for the kid to watch. So it kind of works on two levels. So I could kind of see, Matt, how your dad coming as a man probably in his 50s watching this, how he would have felt the way that he would have known this more serious superhero to have been in the 40s and 50s. So it's interesting that I wouldn't say they play up the TNA because they don't. It's a family movie. But they mm -hmm. kind of got a few... Uh, scenes in there that dad is going to smile while the kid is going, dad, why are you smiling? You can see that in this film. So yeah. I I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to say right now I enjoyed the film a heck of a lot more than I thought I would, to be honest. So from that point of view, I'm not going to dive into it because we have other things to talk about, but I thought it was a fun watch as an initial reaction. So I am going to ask up front, we 2001 a space odyssey a dark city flash gordon is flash gordon better than either of those two movies uh depends how much time i have um <laughs> although it's although it's close to two hours you know what i i know we'll give our ratings towards the end but i think i honestly have flash gordon and 2001 on the same rating <laughs> oh man and does that mean dark city's lower oh. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed this better than Dark City. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> wow. This is exactly what I was hoping for. <laughs> wow. This like, won't be like, boring like, at all. Like, nobody will ever say that this is a cinematic masterpiece a la Stanley Kubrick. But, you know, you didn't, you didn't have people fighting with trees with Stanley Kubrick. So... <laughs> Can you imagine Stanley Kubrick's Flash Gordon? Though? Um, and, and even though that's weird to say, though, like you look at the other. At one point, De Laurentiis wanted uh, Federico Fellini to direct this movie. Could you imagine a fever dream that would have been? <laughs> right, it's still a fever dream, sort of. That's the kind of impressive thing. I and I always wonder about that. It's like how you know all these different people want to make Dune, and that somehow the David Lynch version of Dune seems like that would have been the is the most normal, sensible one yes. that would have been made from all of that. Oh, bizarre! And right, and so, uh, but Nicholas Rogue was also attached to it at one point, and that that would have been very interesting, but hard to sort of imagine, I think, and. And here, when it finally Mike Hodges, the guy who finally makes it, and he he's got a reasonable um, 
filmography as well. It's not the same, you know, he's not coming from the same place that Fellini or Rogue would have been coming from, but he did like get Carter in 71. He had done before this, he had done this work on the screenplay for Damien Omen two. He did the terminal man. And, you know, uh, again, he's got a solid filmography, but nothing, he did a lot of work on television too. Nothing that maybe stands out. And, you, you know, I think if anyone looks at what he'd be remembered for, you probably, some people might go to get Carter. Most people would probably go to flash Gordon. Um, and then, so with, uh, with Flash Gordon rewatching it, I, I something I have to either defend or discard is a comment I made last time when I think uh, uh, Matt, you had said I, it's a good bad movie, and I threw out the well, is it just a good good movie? <laughs> and so now I either have to defend that or, or get off of that. But I'm the the truth of it is this is definitely camp, and it's been made. Whether it should have been or not, it's been made purposefully with camp in mind. And I think the thing that kind of happens, at least for me, like growing up, I did enjoy and I still do enjoy campy movies. And yet I think a lot of times where I would encounter campiness, like really intentional out there campiness, were in the lower budget movies of the 80s and then the 90s. where Because I don't think people give these days and then even then weren't giving you a lot of money to make camp unless you were making a spoof film like airplane, you know, and to me camp and something like airplane, they're a little different. You know, airplane is very focused and naked gun and things like that are focused on being a spoof. No, everyone knows where you are. Camp kind of can go lots of different directions and the people aren't willing, I think mostly to throw that kind of money, at least now and going into the nineties. So when full moon is making movies like doll man you're getting camp because that's what you get for you know roger corman can make camp for the thousands of dollars he makes a movie for and it's kind of weird and jarring to see a movie that costs 35 million dollars be as campy and sort of nonsensical in places as this one is and yet it feels like all of it is very intentional uh you can probably speak to this uh, a little bit Jackson when we get when we start talking about the serial because those special effects you know they're not accidentally looking like that yes by Superman and Star Wars we were trying to branch into this idea that those are still sort of pulp stories but they have this benefit of visual effects that we've never seen before and so they look maybe dated now but seeing those star cruisers rumbling through space seeing Superman literally fly out as the sun is rising over the earth those were impressive visuals in 1978 and 77 respectively but like in this movie like that when 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 their ship crashes for the first time on planet mongo or when the hawkmen are diving down i mean that looks it's colorized but it doesn't look a lot different than it would have looked in 1930 you know 35 36 and so i still appreciate it or the lizard man oh my gosh the lizard man looked like they ran off of a like you know like a elementary school production of Peter Pan or something, you know, like you could see their eyes looking out of their mouth in a, in a way that's completely uh, it's, it's completely artificial. It's completely like you're watching uh, the comic book artist, Alex Ross is on the DVD and he's probably also, you can probably find this on YouTube. And he's talking about how he really views this as a kind of rock opera. Now to be fair, it doesn't quite become a full blown musical and neither outside of that flash song, there are other pieces of music it doesn't quite have other songs either, but it definitely, it's to me, it verges on something more like Phantom of the Paradise or not, not to that level, but, or Rocky Horror Picture Show. It seems like it was more in that vein. It's heading more in that direction. And then you have a little bit of like, we're trying to really replicate the comic strip. 
some of the stuff you were talking about, Bill, like even some of that sexuality that gets a little odd, like people getting whipped and stuff like some of that was in the actual 1930s, like comic strips. I mean, so we're, we're a little bit different now with the comic strips, but stuff like that was actually in those comic strips. So, and even if you watch the old serial, Ming doesn't quite do that whole weird massage thing that he does with Dale, where he's sort of moving her around, but he does something pretty close and almost just as weird in the original serial. So to have all those pieces and then have that level of camp and then have these performances like Max von Sydow and Timothy Dalton. And then, oh my gosh, uh, the, the, the fact that when you get to um, the Hawkmen and you have, um, mm, why is his name not coming to me? Uh, Brian Blessed. Brian Blessed, Brian Blessed. Yeah. Brian Blessed is screaming so much that I don't know if you guys noticed towards the last scene, he has spit in his beard. Like they don't have a brother to wipe it out. He's got a big grub of spit in his beard. And I mean, which you'd expect it because he's screaming, you know, dive and Gordon's alive and all these things. And yet it has this really fun sense of adventure still to it. Like I'm watching it and I'm amused by the goofy lines. And I think you're right, Jackson. Some of these lines are obviously clearly meant to be humorous and funny and to sort of be subversive. And then some of the lines are funny just because of the, the goofiness of, of how they're delivered. But everybody seems to be on a wavelength, even though I think you're right too, Matt, there's a troubled production. People aren't quite sure what to do with it, but it is fun. And it isn't entirely just fun in a sense of I'm watching it over my shoulder or in the background and <laughs> look how goofy this is. Some of these scenes have a sense of adventure that probably works better if you're younger, but that last scene when he's like striking in and they have the Hawkmen coming in. I mean, those are still some beautiful images in this movie. If you take yeah. them, at their self. I mean, you almost have a book of revelations Renaissance painting. Look when the Hawkman starts swooping in at the end and coming out of this big red cloud. I mean, I don't know about you, but I appreciate that sort of imagery more than I did all the CGI of say John Carter a few years ago, you know? Oh yeah. The images are still beautiful and they're, and it almost feels like a silent movie except for when they start talking. And then you, that's when you start to get the Mel Brooks vibe. And so, yeah. Well, it goes to, I mean, the, as far as the effects go, I mean, it's that I think it was the line by Roger Ebert. Um, you may have said this on the, your Harryhausen, you know, when you're talking about Harryhausen. Um, you know, I think it was Ebert who said, you know, the stop motion effects look fake but feel real, and CGI looks real but feels fake. And I, I, I kind of take that attitude. I, I do think it's a, a pretty beautiful film, and I can see what De Laurentiis was doing. I mean, De Laurentiis gets a lot of crap. You know, and and sometimes deservedly so. You know, there's that famous story when he was casting King Kong, the 76 remake, and Meryl Streep came in to read for the role that uh, Jessica Lange got. And he whispered to one of his assistants in Italian, she's too ugly for King Kong, thinking that um, she couldn't speak Italian, and she did. And Oops. so she understood every word he said uh -oh. and got offended and stormed off. Um <laughs> So there, there are stories about De Laurentiis, but he was first and foremost a, a businessman. I can kind of see what he's thinking here. He's thinking, okay, you know, uh, Star Wars has made, you know, sci-fi big again. So the kids will come see it because it's a sci-fi movie. But this is a beloved 30s and 40s comic book and 50s TV show. And so the greatest generation, the boomer generation, they're the ones who have the money. Let's do the effects just like that because that's what they remember. Um, let's throw in you know, a little bit of comedy for everybody else who's obviously not going to take this seriously, which Roger Ebert, his review said he appreciated. 
And so he's thinking he's, you know, by throwing all this in, he thinks he's appealing to everybody. Yeah, it makes yes. sense. And, and, and Ross, who they're interviewing, who had, who isn't involved in it in any way other than he saw it also when he was younger and it really affected him. He was saying, you know, it really feels, it's got that, it's got that disadvantage of coming right at 1980. So it really feels more of a piece of early seventies and it feels very European, you know, and it's not surprising. It was a big hit in Europe. It did well there. It didn't do well here. You know, kind of comes back. I, I, uh, Carp, John Carpenter had his birthday yesterday and somebody posted the line where Carpenter made a statement. I think it's like, well, you know, in Europe, they think I'm a great horror filmmaker in, in Germany or a horror movie director in, in Germany. They think I'm a filmmaker. And in America, they think I'm a bum, you know, at the, at the time in, the, in that 80s time frame. And yeah. so you can kind of see that because it does. There's a part of me. I don't know what you guys think. There's a part of me watching this that almost wanted it to go full blown musical that will not, not not necessarily like having sam j jones sing a song because that might have been disastrous <laughs> but slightly more disastrous than his acting and he would have been dubbed anyway yeah right right that's because that's what happens to him yeah. yeah and although you know for all the all the like kind of stuff thrown at sam like when you look at what buster crab was doing in the original serial and then you see what he's here it's not like flash gordon really needs to do a lot although i heard that kurt russell was passed over for this. And I think that's kind of what that movie, the reason this doesn't become an Indiana Jones or even a Superman is you don't have a central figure that has an actor who can kind of adapt to what they need to adapt to the way that Harrison Ford did the way that in a very different way, Christopher Reeves did for Superman, you know, that even when you look at something like the Popeye movie that Robin Williams was doing, you know, that there's things there where they're taking a character that is meant to be a very much a cartoon and giving it a little bit of idiosyncratic, uh, idiosyncrasies enough that it feels real you know and i don't think he quite does that but you like if there were a few more songs a few more queen songs a few more the way so much of it is staged visually and and particularly towards the end with how the music is synced up with the Hawkman attacking it feels like this might have been even more of a cult hit maybe even at the time had they gone that full musical headed leaned into maybe the rocky horror sensibility to it because the opportunity was there for set pieces to do musical all of a sudden breaking out in the middle of, especially that silly fight scene where the, when uh, Flash was rolling over people like a rolling pin. Like you could have totally gone into full music then. Mm-hmm. I would have thought it would have been interesting to all of a sudden break out and sing Flash. Da, 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 and then the backup singer girls all dancing in the air. Like you could have gone full, full bore there. Can I go ahead and say it, it was the first record I ever bought? Oh wow! Had it on vinyl. Awesome. Did it come with a cool center sleeve? No, no, not really. Not that I remember. No. And it's slightly ahead of a few years later when they do Highlander, which you know, it's the weird thing popped into my head watching it was like uh, the unintentional, not really an Easter egg when when uh, towards the end is Zoltan, who's the head of the Hawkman, Blessed's character. He says, "Oh well, who wants to live forever?" and then. Of course, I, right. of course, the Queen song starts playing in my head. But uh, let's talk a little bit, if you guys want to, about the the performances, because I think they are some of the most interesting stuff in the movie, because some people have showed up with on their acting game. You know, there are people here who are still treating this like an opportunity, who are still acting, and these the, the it's way, way over the top. But I also think it's just as the music is so important. I don't think this movie would be nearly as much fun if you didn't have a lot of these colorful characters that populate the movie. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, Jackson, you're being kind of quiet. What do you think? Well, I love the cast. And even Sam J. Jones, who isn't, like, outstanding. I mean, he's not, like, acting up a storm or anything. I think he's fine. Uh, He's never distracting for me. Although I do agree. I think casting a Kurt Russell could have been uh, a really good move. I mean, he's not blonde, obviously. But, um, you know, you can dye his hair or whatever. Um, I, I, you know, Sam J. Jones, Melody Anderson... I didn't think they were outstanding, but they deliver lines well. They had some funny moments. Um, and really, the, the standouts for me were Brian Blessed as as Prince Voltan and Timothy Dalton as Prince Baron, uh, because they've, they've got this like level of, of campy, but also like class. It kind of reminds me of The Princess Bride. I don't know how to explain it. Yes, yeah. Um, and one thing mm-hmm. I was thinking of while watching this, I was thinking, how would this have been different if Rob Reiner had done it? And I think that would have been interesting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it did. It gave me the the vibe of The Princess Bride. Another movie that this reminds me of tonally, and I'll get back to the cast in a second, but tonally, this also reminds me of The NeverEnding Story. I don't know if you get that as well, but it's kind of campy, but it's also kind of fantastical and serious, and you get into it a little bit, but then you feel guilty for getting into it. It's one of those things, and I, I feel like it's got the same vibe, but um, yeah. Some of them do a pretty good job. I think um, the guy who plays Dr. Hans Zarkov, and I've never heard of this guy. T- Top- Topol. Topol? Topol. He's in The Fiddler on the Roof. I know that. Yes, the but, star um, of The Fiddler on the Roof. Right. And for, uh, for your eyes only. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but uh, I thought he was good. Max von Sydow was kind of, you know, he's hamming it up, but that's what you needed for the Emperor Ming. Um, so yeah, I think the cast is pretty solid. Uh, if there's one person that maybe didn't really rein it in that much, it'd be Ornella Moody, I think is how you say her name, is Princess Aura. She's kind of stumbling through her lines a little bit. It's, without subtitles, I don't know if I would have understood her 100%, but she's got some real clunkers of lines, but I think that comes down to the writing. Uh, but my favorite line that she says in the, in the entire thing is she says um, something like, uh, Flash is resurrected. And he says, how? And she says, by magic, of course, with a kiss, because I like you. And that just made me burst out laughing. I don't think it was supposed to be comedic, but her accent and everything and the way she delivered it, it was so funny. So cast, not bad, honestly. Sam J. Jones probably could have been a little bit more outgoing and a little bit more... I don't know, had a little bit more heart, but he, he looks good in the part, and, uh, you know, I, he doesn't take me out of it. Did they do, like, a large sweep for a lead for this? Because, I mean, I think I recall Sam Jones had won, I don't know, a contest or something, but they had put out a big call for male leads to do this role, and somehow he ended up as the main guy. Or, or did he just win out based on the merit of his acting? I don't know. Oh no! It was um, what I heard was it was either Dino De Laurentiis's wife or someone related to him saw him on the dating game. Oh boy! And recommended him from that. He had, he did audition Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Schwarzenegger wanted the role. And De Laurentiis apparently exploded midway through the audition and said, "Accent! I cannot work with accent." And turned around, and walked out. Um, and he for did so many want, reasons. Yes, yes, and he did want Kurt Russell, but you know, Kurt Russell was not big on it. He really didn't uh, didn't really want to do it. I and I think there was also going to be an overlap between this and, and filming Escape from New York, and he wanted he wanted to be Snake Plissken. That's the right uh, choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. That's how it came down to to Sam Jones. I think his performance may have been better if he wasn't getting drunk every night and getting into bar fights. 
because no, that's what or, going on. Or maybe that maybe that helped. We don't really know. Yeah, do yeah we? we don't. That's right. Maybe it would have been worse. Yeah. Was uh, was Oliver Reed on set? I don't know. Yeah, Oliver around. Reed could have easily been Zoltan. In fact, maybe maybe he was fired because the bar tab was pushing the budget up beyond thirty five million. <laughs> easily could have been Zoltan. Although I'm glad Brian Blessed is. Although it's funny to see him so over the top on this, and then later, you know, he does the voice for uh, the lead Gungan in the Phantom Menace. And I think he had a comment at the time. I didn't, under- this was so over the top. I didn't understand it at all. And I'm like, says Zoltan, the king of the Hawkman wearing like bondage gear and giant, you know, paper mache wings. And he couldn't get into this. So George Lucas, that's when you sort of stopped and said, let me re-examine this. What's funny is when I was looking into Brian Blessed, I'm like, I know that voice. I know that voice. Well, I've got a five-year-old. He's the voice of Grampy in Peppa Pig. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. No, I remember he did the voice in the Tarzan. He was a villain in the Tarzan film, but yeah. he has a great voice. He's a wonderful voice. I'm like, like I knew him as an actor, but I'm like, that voice is quite, you know. Oh, he's Peppa's grandpa. Okay, all right. Did you see? Did anybody else see that? Um, De Laurentiis, when it came to Doctor Zarkov, couldn't make up his mind whether to go with Topol or Warren Oates. Oh, That's Warren weird. Oates would have been good. Sorry, yeah, Sergeant Hulka from Stripes. And so he settled it by flipping a coin. Really? Yeah. Because when I think of War Notes, I think of Race with the Devil. Well, yeah, but I always think of Sergeant Hulka from Stripes, too. Yeah. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, but they also said, you know, Max von Sydow, because, you know, <laughs> there was a period of time where people were kind of questioning his street cred, you know, after he'd done all these, you know, he'd done all these Bergman movies and so forth, and he was this respected actor. But then he does Flash Gordon and Strange Brew within a three-year period, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and they were kind of questioning that. But according to what I was watching when I was watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, Von Sydow had grown up as a Flash Gordon fan reading the comic strip. And he fought to get the role of Ming, shaved his head for the audition to get the role. And a couple people on set said, you never saw an actor have more fun playing a character that he just had a blast it looked like he was just absolutely enjoying himself you can almost see him giggling as he was saying some of these lines oh yeah he was having a great time and i think he adds a good bit to the and i think this is why i do still kind of come down on to an extent it's not a perfect movie but i would ultimately say that this because of what it's attempting to do and what it to me achieves it is a good movie or at least a pretty good movie in the sense of I don't think it's all incidentally humorous. You know, I think that some of it works the way they intended it to work. Maybe a good bit of it works. And a, a comparison point for me is we talked about the the cinematic nostalgia or, or nostalgia disorder. You know, for me, one that I had as a kid, I watched, I don't know why, the Masters of the Universe movie with Dolph Lundgren. Oh, boy. <laughs> and But I think it's a good comparison point because they're clearly trying to do some of the same stuff in that movie that they're doing in Flash Gordon. And a good example, you got another pretty good actor slumming it there. You have Frank Langella in that movie plays Skeletor who is under this right, this makeup. And he's trying to do the same basic thing as me. And it's awful. It's totally garbage. And I think, you know, looking at Saito, I'm glad that he did this role. I'm glad that this is in his filmography. I'm glad that he, uh, because even though you, my, my daughter kept looking at it saying, it looks halfway between a Muppet and a person, Dad. Like, because of how made up he is, he kind of looked like a puppet or almost like something from the old Thunderbirds you know, cartoon. But, yeah. but you, you, you can totally see why he went from here to Strange Brew. Because he loved, I think he yeah. loved that hamming it up. He liked being the silly yet stupid heavy, 
you know, the kind of, and he played that in the sit next role. And I mean, he could have kind of cornered the market doing that kind of thing, but I think he was too big an actor. He wanted to do, you know, I, I think you're right, Bill, because if you look at his filmography, I mean, <clears throat> notoriously William Friedkin said that the actor he had the most trouble with on the exorcist was Von Sydow. Cause he said he just didn't get the character was kept flubbing his lines. But then you look at something like needful things where he's playing the devil and he's, you can just tell he's having a blast. Oh, he's yeah. more over the top in needful things than he is here. Yeah. This looks restrained yeah. in comparison to needful things. And I like that movie, but yeah, it's uh But you can just tell he's having fun. Yeah. And well, yeah. I think that's, what's nice about his filmography. You look at all the different shades of that to say, this is the same guy who played chess with death. He played yeah. Jesus. He was the exorcist. He was Ming the Merciless. He's in Strange Brew. A couple nights ago, I was watching the movie Dreamscape with my kids, and they were so surprised to learn that the the nebbish professor in that movie is also Ming the Merciless, you know? Yeah. And then say, oh, well, wait, he was also here in the more recent, they're more familiar with the more recent Star Wars movies, and he had a small role there, and all these different things. And it's just, what a career, a guy who really would take just about anything, and and... He doesn't have too many, I think, clunkers where, in terms of him. The movies, maybe, but most of the movies I ever saw Side Out in, he was never bad. I never, I didn't realize he was in Game of Thrones. Was he? Yeah, he was in three episodes in 2016 called The Three Eyed Raven. Oh, that's right. That's right. He was okay. Yeah, uh, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. I've forgotten too. I kind of, I kind of, kind of came in and out of Game of Thrones. I would, I would tune yeah. in once in a while just to keep track and then kind of zoom back out. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it, it's a shame though. I mean, with, with the performances, because it has, it, it obviously has a strong cast. I mean, Jackson brought up, you know, Prince Baron. I mean, Timothy Dalton at this point, pre bond is a highly respected British theater actor at this point. And I do think he's really good. Um, you know, I really like him in it. You'd almost want to see him play Robin Hood after seeing him here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you brought up Rocky Horror Picture Show, and there's a connection there. Because who's who's Prince Baron's right-hand man? But Right. Riffraff. Riffraff. That's right. And I had forgotten that, too. Yeah, I was watching, and I texted uh, Nathan. I said, did you know Richard O'Brien was in this? Holy cow. I wonder if Richard O'Brien remembers he's in it. But I was going through the cast, and even the one actor towards the bottom, Ted Carroll, character actor, I've known him in a bunch of things. Uh, he played Byro, which is, I think he was just one of the side guys, one of the uh, Hawkmen. Mm-hmm. Is and he the one that says, they winged me? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and there's an actor, John Hallman, who played, again, one of the side, I think, Hawkmen or whatever. And like the, it went deep. They didn't just throw Joe Blow next in line at the uh, union hall. Like they went with actors who knew their part. And so I, I have a question and now I would talk about maybe favorite moments or things like that. But a question I have is we've talked about kind of what it could have been and the different avenues they could have gone and granted. Yes. Could it have ever, I wonder, there's a part of me that wonders if this ever would have been a, hit hit you know unless it had really gone far farther away from flash gordon and tried to become more like star wars there's a part of me that wonders and i'll throw that question out there do you think we would remember or have the cult that has affection for this movie if it what didn't turn out the way it turned out like is it possible that even hiring kurt russell and making this a more prestigious and maybe moving away from the camp 
Do you think that would have made a more memorable movie or not? Because I, I, there's a part of me that thinks this might be the most memorable version of this movie that we could have gotten. Maybe not that we could have gotten, but certainly I think maybe the campy Flash Gordon is the right idea. Maybe not even if they nailed the full landing on it. Yeah, because I think it had to strike that balance between getting the audience of the adults and getting the audience of the kids. Because if you push it a little bit more sexy, like if uh, there was a topless woman or something, then you're getting rid of the kid end of it. But if you made it too silly, mom and dad would have just dropped them off at the theater. So you had to kind of strike that balance between action fighting and then enough to appeal to mom and dad. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, you know, I kind of think maybe if they'd made this around the same time as Barbarella and the same thing, maybe it could have been a hit, you know, in the sixties. Uh, Cause I'm not sure many of the effects would have been differently. Different, no, that's uh, true. And, and that, and even the costumes, I, I, one of the things I read today was that the costume designer didn't even read the script. <laughs> <laughs> He was hired because he'd worked on a bunch of Fellini films. De Laurentiis thought he was a genius. And so he hired him to do this, but he refused to read the script. He just came up with whatever he wanted to do. He wanted to do art deco for some of the background designs, working with a production designer. And so they they started to design all this stuff without ever reading the script. And, you know, so, but that being said, you wouldn't have had the same cast. The cast, you know, with the exception of Sam Jones and dealing with him, a lot of the People there said he was kind of a prima donna for some reason, even though, you know, his one acting credit before this, I believe, was as Bo Derek's husband in 10. I think he has like five five minutes of screen time. So I'm not sure where he got the attitude from. Um, I don't think play, you know, posing in Playgirl should have given it that to him. But anyway, um, <laughs> he, which he did. Um, which they re- but, re- I heard they reprinted it right after this movie came out. Yes, they did with his real name because he used a yeah he, he he used a different name when he did it. But like um, Flesh I Gordon, mean, maybe. Oh yeah, Flesh Gordon. So it was um, like Brian Blessed. They said one of the things Brian Blessed as as uh, Boltan was having so much fun. They had to reshoot a bunch of his scenes. Because when he was using his uh, laser blaster, he kept going pew, pew, pew. (laughs) You can almost sense him doing that in the film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you get the idea that the level that that Blessed is at, you know, that you remember that scene in uh, Jurassic Park when they reveal to Nedry that he's supposed to put the embryos inside of the Barbasol. And when he unscrews the can and he's so delighted, he just starts to sort of wheeze laugh. Get yes. the idea that that's what that's what Blessed is doing anytime he's not actually on camera. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That they uh, hyperventilating sort of because he's pitched at such a level that he's already sweaty and red faced every single moment he's on screen. Like he just they have him in a room screaming, and then they just bring him in for the next scene. But I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting because Jackson and I used to Jackson. I don't know if you remember this when you were little. I would also show you the original Star Trek. Do you remember that? Yeah, oh yeah. So could you see this shot in the 60s with like William Shatner as Flash Gordon? <laughs> yeah, in fact, yeah, I think that could, the effects would have been the same as you said, and you're closer to the source, you know, you're closer to the to the original, so it's more in the public uh, perception, and yeah, I think that, that could have done well. That said, I think that this was the time to release a sci-fi movie like this. I mean, I don't know why it wasn't a bigger hit. It was primed for it. I mean, you had Star Wars, Star Trek, the motion picture, Buck Rogers, and this is the same year as Empire. 
Yeah. And yet somehow it, it just barely, you know, made its budget back. I don't, and probably didn't make back all the marketing costs in the U.S. So I don't know why, but yeah, maybe in the 60s it would have done better. But sci-fi was big during the, during the late 70s and early 80s. So I'm not, I'm not really sure why it didn't do better. Does it blow anybody's mind that this supposedly had a larger budget than The Empire Strikes Back? Well, <laughs> the thing is, it's like <laughs> Jackson had mentioned earlier, and I will address that because I think we the one thing to talk about is like the sets and the costumes, which you've kind of been talking about so much of that. He mentioned the never ending story. And yeah, like particularly that throne room scene where you come in, and yes, yeah, some of the, the the costumes are perfect, are purposely shoddy, but you can tell a lot of work went into building all of this stuff, sort of manually, to the point that there's very, you know, even the things that should be small miniatures, you wonder if they are. You know what I mean? You get the feeling mm-hmm. that they built a giant ship. It's <laughs> big enough for Flash Gordon to climb and not necessarily to fly around. But in, and of course, in the old 30s, that's just a, you know, that probably is a Barbasol can on a string. And yet you get the idea that they even in, in Empire, there's a lot of miniature work. And I don't yeah. know that you're seeing as much, you know, it looks like they tried to build these big grand sets, even when they probably didn't need to do as much of it as they did. So it's the spectacle of it is kind of strange. Because I, you know, a lot of the mat work, but the never-ending story, the colors of the film remind me of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the nothing kind of coming up and rolling up amongst all these like red-hued clouds and this big dark cloud. And towards the end, some of those imagery, it's just they really went out of their way visually. And I wonder if that's why. And then, of course, you know, Star Wars is big, but I, I wonder when Star Wars got the budget to do Empire, if there was still a question that Star Wars is not the mega the megawatt thing that obviously it later becomes that maybe still there's a feeling that, Hey, we're more willing to give flash Gordon money than empire, you know, in a sense is, is George uh, Lucas still sort of proving himself a little, even though star Wars has been a big hit by this point. Yeah. I, I wondered when they made up the big sets, like they're paying a lot of money to make it look like the gong show. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted you wanted you wanted Jean Jean the dancing machine to come out in the in the middle of the football fight? Is that what you wanted? Bill? Does it not have that kind of feel like somebody should just bang the gong? Okay, on with the next scene. Let's go. Honestly, if 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 uh, Gordon had banged a gong towards the end, you know, and like caused Ming to fall to his knees holding his head, that would have been perfect. And it would have, it would not have at all seemed out of place. In fact, that's probably a deleted scene somewhere. And it's funny you mentioned like this. What have we done in the sixties with the effects changed? No, but you remember that the lizard man that that Kirk fights looks like three hundred times better than the lizard man. In this movie. <laughs> that's true. But to I'm link born. it back to the sixties, wouldn't it have been apropos at yes, that sir. point yeah. to have Leslie Nielsen play Flash Gordon? Oh, that could have happened because yeah, he was a Leslie sci-fi Nielsen. guy, right? If you look yeah. at Buster Crab in the original and Leslie Nielsen in Say Forbidden Planet, I mean, again, the 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 blonde hair aside, he he really would be very good for it. He would have been he would have been. Let me put it this way: he would have been much closer to the Flash Gordon of the serials than Sam J. Jones is. Well, for sure, because he had a bit. Of, he, I mean, he had acting chops. Like the guy could act, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the irony: is that most people my age know Leslie Nielsen as a as a comic actor, but up until airplane, he'd done almost exclusively dramas. In fact, I listened to an interview with one of the Zucker brothers. And when they cast Leslie Nielsen, the, the studio threw a fit. It's like, you can't have him in a comedy. He's not a comedic <laughs> actor. 
I mean, and the thing with Leslie Nielsen is like he's a smart, intelligent guy. Like his brother Eric Nielsen was uh, deputy prime minister of Canada. Like they come from education where it was strong. So for him to be able to portray the sci-fi straight man or the silly goofy man, you know, there's a certain intelligence level to do that. Mm-hmm. He milked it uh, as long as he could. Well, that's the thing that Gilbert Godfrey on his podcast points out all the time. He's like, you know, the, the shame about Leslie Nielsen is when he played comedy straight, he was funny. When he tried to be funny, he wasn't funny anymore. Right, yeah, it's the earnestness like of this. Yes. Yeah. yeah, when he did that, what was that, that vampire one? Like, I was Dracula like, oh. dead and loving it. Yeah, oh, that was, awesome. that was, a, that was a, a black mark on everybody. <laughs> everybody yeah. is just, wow. It was, it was awful. But Maybe I think he would, have been a, he would have been a good flash. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just, you know, you get, you know, Sam Jones. If, if you haven't seen the documentary, I don't know, Nathan, I think you've said, have you seen Life After Flash with Sam Jones? I saw some of it. Yeah, I saw a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's interesting because the guy, you know, the guy finally got his life together. He kind of went on a drug and alcohol binge for a couple years. He was always upset that he actually didn't become a professional football player. That's what he set out to do. Um, and he only, he made the practice squad for the Seahawks, which is nothing to laugh oh, at. Oh, did he really? Oh, yeah, okay. he did for a couple years. And so that didn't work out. So we started doing commercials and modeling and, and, you know, but he just kind of, after flash, he had such a bad reputation. Um, uh, and De Laurentiis just trashed him all over town. He couldn't get a gig, uh, for years. And he started to do some like direct to video stuff in the nineties and a little bit of TV stuff here and there in the eighties, but he finally, you know, finally went to rehab and sobered up and got remarried. And now he makes his living either on doing conventions, comic con conventions, but his day job is he's a professional security guard for like high profile execs going into Mexico and back. Oh boy. Well, he's he's a former Marine. And so, I mean, he literally is like, He's armed with like an AR-15 and a Glock 9 millimeter and going in and out of New, uh, in and out of Mexico during the week. Well, Nathan and I recently saw him in Accelerator. Oh wow, <laughs> that's A X X Accelerator. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Not an adult film either. It's a, no, it, no. Like, it's a and it's a super low budget movie that people may you know like it looks really good because it's a bunch of independent people that got together and put it together and he's in it. But one thing you do note, and I, I think kind of what you're alluding to, Matt, is I think if the right person got a hold of him and put him in something, uh, and not necessarily maybe like a Tarantino, because I'm not, I don't know if he could quite handle all that, but like someone were to get him and know where to put him, he was almost playing a Terminator sort of character in the thing we saw, and he was hamming it up. You know, of course he's going more the, he's hamming it up way more than he ever did in in Flash because he's almost kind of the straight straight man in Flash a little bit compared to everybody else. So you kind of see that I don't do. Is it going to be the kind of career that, you know, a Kurt Russell or somebody would have had? No, but I think you could get Sam J. Jones and get him in a movie where and not have him just play Sam J. Jones there to remind you of The Flash. But he, could easily him, be, he could easily be in the next Expendables. Well, I mean, yeah, I, he was he had a lot. He, he had the kind of um, energy there that you kind of want to see from Dolph Lundgren, but you very rarely see, you know, not that Lundgren can do it, too, when you when you're able to focus him, you know. Um, I actually thought he was decent in the second Creed movie, but it's, you know, it, it's all about the focus, I think. So I, it would be interesting to see them. He needed, do yeah. He needed somebody on set to kind of bring his ego down. Um, 
I remember hearing years ago an interview with uh, Jack O'Halloran, uh, who played Non in Superman and Superman Two. Um, he, you know, he's a former professional boxer, heavyweight. I mean, he he fought Ken Norton, I believe, and his dad was like in the mob in New York City. He was a tough guy, and apparently Christopher Reeve on the set of Superman and Superman Two was insufferable at first. That he had this huge ego. There'd been this huge casting call. He beat out all these other people to become Superman. He'd been on Broadway. He just thought a lot of himself. And apparently he went to a bar one night and was complaining about being surrounded by less talented actors like this former boxer. Well, it got back to Jack O'Halloran, who literally picked him up by his lapels and lifted him off the ground and looked over at Dick Donner and said, you either rein this guy in or I'm going to beat the bleep out of him. And apparently after that, Christopher Reeve started to behave himself. <laughs> and I think Sam Jones needed a Jack O'Halloran on set to just be like, look, you're not all that. Okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, I took punches from Ken Norton. I can take you, you know, just do what you're told. <laughs> right. Um, well, and, and I, before we move on to, to something else, did you, has, even, have, has anyone else here seen, because Pete, uh, Peter Nielsen recently was talking, he went on a binge of watching all these like masked superhero movies and we were kind of going back and forth on um, a messenger and he was always updating us on which ones he was, was on. now I'm watching the shadow and I'm watching this. And then he suddenly said, I'm watching the spirit from the late eighties starring Sam yes. J. Jones. I had never seen, and I still haven't seen this movie. Have, uh, did you see it, Matt? I haven't seen it. I've heard of it. If memory serves though, that was a TV movie that was supposed to be turned into a series. But oh, maybe was, that might explain a lot because I yeah. never heard of it at all. And I was like, Sam J. Jones played the spirit and I haven't seen it. And it, it can't yeah. be worse than the spirit from what it, whenever that was 2008 or, or whenever. Oh yeah. 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 No, that was, no, it was, if memory serves, yeah, it was, it was like a pilot TV movie that was supposed to be turned into a series, but it was never picked up. Oh, uh, that makes like a lot pitch, more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like pitched a Fox or something like that. And it just never went anywhere. But you can probably find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it it may be, if that was the case, maybe it turns out I have seen it and just (laughs) just didn't remember it. So so back to Flash. I'll turn it back over here. Uh, So, Jackson, do you have a favorite scene or a favorite moment in in Flash uh, that you really think kind of makes a movie or helps make the movie stand out to you? I do have a favorite scene that I think is underrated by most people because I, I, I haven't seen this clip on YouTube or anything, but it's um, Ming's uh, marriage scene when uh, when uh, what what's there? Dale is being marched towards Ming for for the wedding. You see a uh, ship flying in the background with a like a flag behind it with like a message <laughs> behind it, and then the first shot it says it says like all creatures will marry or something, and then and then like spelled M E R R Y and. Then and then the next shot is a ship flies by and it says under pain of death. <laughs> and I thought that was a really good, like almost background, like comedy gag that most people don't catch. So that, that's me going back to the intentional comedy thing. I think there, there are a lot of intentionally funny moments at that land, but I would say as far as like spectacle goes, that seems like a really hard scene to set up that I don't think a lot of people appreciate when they call this movie, just pure camp and it has no real merits to it. That scene, whenever, is it called the Ajax? It's something like that, that the battleship that they send out to go destroy uh, Flash. 
whenever uh, they're raiding that thing and they're all like swooping down on it, it feels like, I mean, it's like the trench run and the Death Star trench run in Star Wars. It feels like really tense since they're tense action scene and you're actually scared that somebody's going to be shot. Now, that said, they're, they're, the stakes are kind of lowered earlier in the movie when we find out that people can be resurrected with a shot. Uh, because like that, that kind of takes a little bit of the tension out of it. Um, but who wouldn't uh, be carrying that around like somebody's got a peanut allergy with an EpiPen? I just have that on me all the time. Right, exactly. especially the guys yeah. in Arborea that have to stick their hand in that <laughs> yes. thing. It's like how many yes. kids did you lose? <laughs> right, and and I we should talk about that scene because that's there's some genuine tension there. It's almost like Hitchcockian. Well, not quite to that level, but it, it's pretty tense. <laughs> it's exactly like Hitchcock. Don't back off. <laughs> <laughs> that's the classic bomb under the table thing right there you got well, the creature inside yeah, the wood stump um so th- this this ritual that they have on Ar- arborea um which is timothy dalton's realm uh that the young men who want to become part of i guess the fighting force uh they want to become men of of arborea they stick their arms into the stump and I guess it's just pure random, or maybe it's confidence. I'm not really sure how it works, but you either get stung by this creature inside of the stump, or you don't. And if you get stung, uh, this green ooze comes out of your arm, and apparently you will suffer for days or months, depending on how strong you are, until the madness kills you. Uh, which sounds awesome. It's like the the Jedi uh, Sarlacc pit digested for a thousand years sort of thing. It sounds awesome in concept. We never get to see it, but... Um, it's like a night gallery yeah. earwig is what it's like. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some genuine tension in that scene. They're going back and forth. Flash is challenged to do it uh, by the prince. Um, and they're going back and forth. And then, you know, it comes to Timothy Dalton and he says, no, it's your turn again. You know, uh, and... We had that great subversion where Flash sticks his arm in. Oh, you know, you can see it coming from a mile away. You know what he's going to do. But, um, yeah, I think there's some genuine tension in that scene. And um, I can see what they were trying to do. They didn't quite pull it off. Like I said, that subversion where Flash kind of puts it back on um, uh, Prince, what's his name, Baron. He kind of he surprises him. You can see it coming from a mile away because, again, it's Sam J. Jones. He's not really selling it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was really good. Do you guys have any thoughts on that scene? No, I was kind of like, is this like a new game of rock, paper, scissors? Like, what, what the hell's going on this scene? <laughs> I feel like it's almost the James Bond scene, you know, where like this is the matching the wits. Although I don't know why it's matching wits because they're just sticking their hand in. You know, there's not, it's not even a card game. They're not trying to really bluff per se. And it, and when he finally does the subversion, like you say, why didn't he, you know, every time he's sticking his arm in there, there's a good chance he's going to get it stung. And he does it like four times before he decides to fake it. oh my gosh yeah yeah well apparently before he was drafted in the nfl he did not graduate summa cum laude from where he played (laughs) but but to to jackson's point i think that's one of the interesting things about the movie is yeah there is i think there's generally genuine tension that scene just from this perspective of this is flash he's in danger and you what's going to happen and that's basically how the movie turns but it doesn't operate off of logic nor really does it but you'll get these scenes that suddenly have some tension. And I agree about the last battle. In fact, one thing that Alex Ross, the comic artist, was saying, that scene when you've got the pulsing like rock soundtrack and the Queen music and it's building and it's building. And it towards the end, it's not even the Flash song anymore. It's just that pumping like bass as he is getting closer and closer. And you've got the wedding march, the music that goes from like it sounds like the wedding march and it almost gets funereal the closer she gets. 
to the to the the throne room and then you're like you know do you promise not to blast her into space and he's like and he gives him an eye like you better rephrase that <laughs> and all of that but he talked about it. he goes i wish modern sci-fi movies would use more something like that just building the visual and the and the soundtrack together because you get a rousing moment you're waiting there's some tension and there's some anticipation that comes and when that thing finally flies in there and you know um and the and the ship kind of stabs Ming like that whole moment does work for kind of an energized charged action scene and I think his point is movies don't quite do that so there isn't it isn't just oh have the ship crash in and haphazardly use all these special effects there's a lot of good editing and there's a lot of good and again I do think that those scenes of the Hawkman flying down amidst those clouds it has an almost uh like a biblical or Armageddon sort of feel to it. They're going for something kind of classically big in those moments. I think they're cool. Something that a moment that caught me and I'll let everyone else go around. What did you think about that? It's strange that they spend so much time because it almost feels like a serious moment that would be in a different movie. When they go to erase Zarkov's memory and that really should just be a scene where they sort of zap him. Right. And then his mind is gone and we find out later, but we get to see there's all these shots of his life that are actually somewhat, I mean, I don't know if they end up being that poignant because they're not, the time isn't spent on them, but it seems like there's an extra level there to develop. We get to see the tragedies that happened in his life. We see him struggling in his mind to resist all of this being erased. It's as if they looked at this as, oh, we do want a moment where you really think about what it would be like to have your mind and your personality wiped out. It just seems like a much more thoughtful moment than, than should belong in the Flash Gordon movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty pretty scary. It's almost like a horror scene. And of course, you see Hitler in that scene, and uh, and Ming yes. is like, well, he showed some promise. But yeah, it's kind of scary. You see his wife being erased from his memory or his family and his childhood and everything until he's a fetus, and they leave him at a fetus, and then they're going to reprogram him. Um, so that's that's pretty pretty extreme. My question is, right? So we learn later that Zarkov's memory actually wasn't erased. So what were they, like, were those fake memories he was implanting? Because he says, like, I was hanging on to them, but their computers say they were erased. I'm not really sure how that works. They have junky um, computers is the answer. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, they didn't, they didn't do a Mac, there was no McAfee scan on that. Right, right. Yeah. iOS was not up to date. <laughs> yeah, there's some genuine tension in that scene. Yeah, that that is a good scene, and they were definitely trying to play up the drama. That wasn't purely just for camp. I think they were really trying to uh, make you think that Zarkov was in some serious danger there. Yeah, doesn't, to... he say, doesn't he say at one point he was singing Beatles songs? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm singing yeah. the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and he's oh, delivering that scene man. while he's riding on the back of that, or the Hawkmen are carrying him. I think at that point, and he's but. Well, and you know, and listening to Jackson talk there, it it real uh, it makes does dawn on me that we essentially we asked the question earlier, what would a Stanley Kubrick Flash Gordon movie look like? And those three minutes are what what it would look like. Yes, <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, like I don't know about you guys, the scene that stands out to me. Uh, I mean, other than that, the opening, the, the fight scene. Uh, but was the was uh, not the opening fight scene where they're all the silliness, but the later fight scene on the circular uh, object yes. that moves around and the spikes come out and Dalton and Flash are going at it. That's the scene that jumps out to me. Yeah, that's story. my favorite too, Bill. That tilting disc thing. Yeah. I remembered for years before I caught it again on like video or HBO or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that jumped out to me were the, the, the intentional cheesiness of the lines. And there were a couple of them that I actually wrote down. Because there's at one point, Flash is being held by chains, and uh, uh, down comes Aura, or down comes Aura, and she, and and he's being held up. He's got this Flash T-shirt, like marketing, like marketing 101. You got the name of this movie on your T-shirt. It's, he's being held there, and uh, Aura comes down. And she goes, "Boy, you look good. You, you know, can you come help me?" She goes, "Oh, it's the eye makeup." <laughs> What to the eye makeup that makes me look good? <laughs> and then there's a, there's another point where um, when the when uh, Flash is dealing with the telepathy with Aura and she's in the at the airplane in this ship flying away, and she says, you know, tell her to fake him out with Ming. Girls know how to do it. It's been to, been done to me before. <laughs> That whole scene is weird too, where he's, her, yeah. his thoughts get mixed up. This girl's really blowing my mind, and she's like, "What? Oh my god!" I had to write them down. I'm going, "Really? Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah!" And I don't even yeah. want to mention like the, like when they're executing, you know, Flash Gordon, the outfit he's wearing. Oh my gosh! It's like I know. It's like it's like it's like he shops the same place Big Daddy from Dodgeball shop. At, you know? <laughs> Right. There's a point when you're looking at this and you're like, this is the movie itself and its Vegas floor show iteration at the yes. same time. Yes. This is Joel Schumacher's Flash Gordon and whoever directed this one. Gosh. <laughs> and, and my favorite part about that execution scene is right before it, they say that Flash is going to be executed at 2915 Mingo Mean Time, <laughs> which I think is a hilarious <laughs> little detail. Everything's got to be Mingo or Mingo. It's, it, that, that's fantastic. Lots of little, and you, it's that's right from the 30s. I feel like they're like, yeah, we'll just throw that in. Was thing. I the only one that thought that that monster in the uh, swamp scene was the cheesiest looking monster you've ever seen? Oh, that looked like God. a trash oh, bag. Yeah. With an air, <laughs> air, like a fan, like a box fan underneath. Of it. <laughs> when he starts slicing it up, you expect the blood to squirt out. No, it's just like it's just a big piece of um, foam just being cut open. You know, my like kids were literally talking about how they could replicate that sequence, like in the house, <laughs> just pour mud down. You know? Because they're all into making movies. I'm like, we can make this. It's like I'm not giving you 35 million, but I don't think you need it. Um, but there are some like I like the line too later on when Baron and Zarkov are strung up in the like dungeon or whatever, and he turns and says, "Tell me more about Houdini." No, <laughs> I wrote that down. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. Uh, one 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 thing I want to mention. We we kind of uh, close it up here. You had mentioned a minute ago, Jackson, about like the little detail of like when the, when the ship carrying the banner says all creatures will make merry under pain of death. Those little things are the kinds of things that my kids really like, or the Mingo and those sorts of things like they locked onto. And it kind of made me realize that in some senses, Flash Gordon really is a kid's movie, but how different the concept of what a kid's movie was at this point in time to what it is now, you know, those little details are the things the kids look for. Like when the Hawkmen form the words to say, thanks flash, you know, like right. those little things, even the fact that the lizard man, like there's no good reason to make the lizard man, a person in a costume with their eyes sticking out of the middle of the mouth, unless you're just trying to be kind of whimsical, you know? And I think there's so much whimsy in there that's on purpose that it, which again, it's different than the like masters of the universe movie where this is just the, this is the stuff they could slap together 
in the like couple hours they had to, to, to like prep the film. And so I do appreciate that. And I, I wish that this idea of let's put more details in for a younger audience and less details is something that people could probably benefit to, to understand even now, you know, a, a, ch- a children's film shouldn't be something that's rushed. It's to be something with a lot of detail with a lot of, like looking at a picture book, you know, and that's kind of what the experience of this is for me really. Now, now here's the question. I, I had never heard of the actor. I, I mean, I had seen him. Topol, is that that's obviously a stage name? Does that mean something? Is that his actual name? Is there a story behind I don't know about? For Topol, I, yeah, I'd have to look that up. You know, I I had known him from, of course, Fiddler on the Roof, and he. Yeah. There's kind of a famous story behind that. You know, he did the film, even though um, he was not the guy who originated on on Broadway. That was Zero Mustel you know, most famous from the producers, uh, Mel Brooks, the producers. And, but Zero had a, had a reputation being difficult to work with. So they went looking for somebody else and went with, with Topol. And I think that most of he spent most of his career on Broadway till he did like this and for your eyes only kind of back to back. But I think he was primarily a Broadway actor. Yeah. But the the actual name Topol, that's just an, uh, uh, acting name obviously. oh i would imagine it is his name you know, is but... is uh cham c h a i m topol so topol was like oh, his okay. last name but yeah, then he kind of just shortened it to that gotcha. so kind of like so prince you know, real, prince, like, real, prince's real name was prince rogers nelson so you just knock off all that stuff you don't need and just go for the one name. So you, you yeah. hear sheer sheer sting topol yeah <laughs> exactly yeah, still around. Born in 1935, he's Topol's still around. Is he still? Is he still acting? I don't know. I don't. Um, yeah, that. Let me see when his last, you know, credit, credit was. was. Yeah. 2019. He did a documentary. He was interviewed in a documentary. Before okay. that, his last acting credit was 1998. Well, so, you know okay, what? He so apparently, he's... looking at like uh, Wikipedia here, it mentions that he does. He is a voice artist. He does a lot of dubbing of characters in Hebrew language versions of movies. So, like, for example, Hagrid in the Harry first two Harry Potter movies, mm-hmm. if you see this in Hebrew, it's Topol doing the voice of Hagrid. That makes Hebrew. sense. If, if memory serves, he's from Israel. I think he's yeah, from he is. Tel Aviv. Yeah, he's an Israeli yeah. actor. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because yeah. yeah, so. he obviously has a certain pizzazz. Like, he's a good actor. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's having fun with this too, because if you watch him and other stuff, I mean, he, he can be much more restrained, but he's, he's definitely kind of having fun as well, kind of chewing the scenery, you know, in this. Yeah. And I think that's what ultimately makes it work. Pro- trouble production yeah. or not, what ends up on screen is a lot of people having fun and it, it helps you have fun, I think. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, and that, and that's why it still holds one of the reasons why it still holds up for me is that, you know, and I do think going back, you know, you talked about this, you know, appealing to kids. I mean, obviously it did to an extent. It wasn't the hit De Laurentiis wanted it to be, but I remember loving it when I was eight years old. Jackson, you said you saw it when you were eight, nine and you really liked it. Mm -hmm. And so it obviously, you know, does have an appeal to, to kind of that age group. And for somebody like me, and, I, and I've heard not just Seth MacFarlane, but um, like Edgar Wright loves this movie. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, a lot of these movies that were clunky and bad around the same time, like, you know, George Lucas going on doing Howard the Duck, you know, those movies 
Oh. They didn't even really work when you were a kid. <laughs> and no, I saw that in the theater too. Yeah, and, and I, I, I could never, I could never unsee um, oh. uh, duck boobs. Um, that was just oh my what lord, a, what a travesty! That <laughs> oh, I was going to say, we just watched. Uh, I just watched the movie Scare Me, and at one point during the movie, the guy goes, uh, "He's acting at one of the stories," and he says, uh, "And they're watching a movie on the VCR," and the girl goes, "Howard the Duck." Okay, it's Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh. Oh, but um so let's go ahead any last thoughts that anyone had um anything you want to say jackson about the movie uh yeah well i just want to say really quick uh this is even though this is not a great like technically a great movie it is it's trying to be campy it's trying to be silly I I just everything about it is so iconic to me. It's so nostalgic to me, especially the soundtrack. But I, I remember one time, uh, and by the way, I hadn't seen the movie in at least five years at this point. I was in Spanish class in ninth grade, and I hadn't seen it in at least five years. And suddenly, the football fight song just popped into my head, and I unconsciously <laughs> started to hum it out loud before I knew what hit me. It's just it's just pure nostalgia, and uh, I definitely have some C and D for this, which is funny because again, it came out in 1980. But um, yeah, I, I I think this this will appeal to kids. And something you were saying earlier, Nathan, is that um, kids like little details, and I think that's definitely true. Kids like when in kids movies, there's little world building details that are silly but memorable, and the approximate mong scale three that kind of thing really sticks with kids um like i think of fantastic mr fox which is a movie that works for both kids and adults and that's got a lot of little world building details and it's very adult all the characters talk like adults but kids like that they like feeling like they're in on something that they have to use their brain on um so yeah i think that's why it works for kids even now and i definitely wouldn't hesitate to show this to kids even if you think that they're going to think it's a little silly, they'll have fun with it. Even if they're making fun of it, they're still enjoying it and being entertained. So I would not hesitate at all to say that this is a good movie, if yes. not weighed down by its technical merits. I would say it's yeah. good, good. Yeah, I, good, good. <laughs> there you go. Somebody, he, he's giving you some cover, Nathan. I um, it, it, Just on the football fight thing, which... I actually, Jackson, do you remember I had that on my uh, iPod back when you were little? We just play it in the car. It was one of the songs we play in the car. Yeah, and, that's probably the reason it's so memorable for me. Yeah. Absolutely. But I, I forgot to mention, everyone agrees that entire scene, the football fight, was improvised. It was supposed to be a straight-up fight. And when Sam Jones saw that the egg things looked like footballs, he just started to do the football thing, and the director <laughs> went with it. And then Melody Anderson... The, he, she's sitting there thinking, watching him do this. He goes, well, Dale's an all-American girl. She's obviously been a cheerleader. So she starts to do the cheerleading thing. That was improvised. <laughs> but it's so perfect because, and Jackson yeah. can, can attest to this, in the, in, the, in the serial, that same scene is there, and it's just a cheesy-looking sword fight. It's just a goofy sword fight. Right. But there's nothing else in the Flash Gordon film, this 80s film, that underscores the fact he's a football player. There's nothing. So when he gets in there and he's – I mean, that scene is so beautiful as it is because of that that element that, oh, he's going to do the football thing. Because you've already established the camp. You might as well go go for it. And it's it's better because of that. And and it ends the way you would expect a New York Jet quarterback to uh, run that, too. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> so final rating for you, Jackson, and then we'll move on to Matt. You know what? I'm gonna give it a seven point five to an eight out of ten. 
I would say four stars out of five. I think it's probably closer to a six technically and objectively, but I, I love this movie. I love watching it, and I'm sad that we never get a sequel. Yeah, just go for an eight, man. <laughs> eight, eight it is. Eight, eight out of ten, five. I'm sticking to my guns. Eight out of ten. Oh, Matt? Uh, I have the Wolfman Josh disease when it's like, I can give a movie like a two and still say buy it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I gave, I, in my letterbox review for Nailgun Massacre, I gave it like one out of five. And I said, but you have to buy this movie. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like uh, Dark Shock on Elves. But he's yes, like, exactly. this thing keeps falling, but I'll pay a couple hundred to get the VHS. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um I love this movie. Technically, it's got all kinds of problems, uh, but I do love it. I'll just, I, 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 on a technical factor, I'd have to say it's like a, a four, but on a, on a scale of one to 10, when it comes to fun, it's like an eight. It's just fun. It's a blast. And yeah, awesome. So we have two eights. Bill. Well, it's, it's funny. I, th- I, th- I think I gave 2001 an eight and a half. <clears throat> Now, so you're giving uh, Flash a nine? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I was just ruminating that in my head. A couple of things I had is Melanie Anderson. I looked her up. I realized she was in the the uh, underrated uh, zombie film Dead and Buried. Which oh yeah, is, that, uh, yeah. And she was also in Battlestar Galactica. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's got a bit of the chops. The other thing I always wondered is like when you're pitching a movie like this to Von Sydow. This is obviously pre Strange Brew the campiness how would you how would you pitch this to von cedow how you give him you... strange brew first <laughs> you discuss this over drinks yeah, like like seven I mean, boxes of palmazon wine like uh, you know I, 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 well. this is a guy that's that's played death and he's also been shakespeare and he's also you know london stages now you're going to be this tight up guy with a cape mink how, like, how does that conversation go? I don't. You know what? Maybe he was hanging out with Michael Caine. Um, Michael Caine has famously said that you know, if you if the price is right and he has the time, he'll do any movie. Um, I saw an interview with Peter Riegert, who did Shock to the System with Michael Caine, and he said he was on set one day and he was looking at a script, and Michael was like, well, "What do you got there?" He goes, "Well, it's a." it's a movie and they want me to do it. And he said, do you have time to do it? Do you have anything coming up? He goes, no, I got nothing coming up. I'm not sure I want to do it. It's a horror movie. And Michael Caine said, I'll go do it. They won't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a lot of quotes there. Maybe they were because he did do Get Carter with the same director earlier on. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Michael Caine is just famously, you know, he's got that comeback when people ask him about Jaws the Revenge. And he goes, well, you know, I've never seen the movie. But I've seen the beach house it bought, and it's quite nice. <laughs> yeah, Kane has no illusions about that. Well, and you know, the, the thing with Cedow is obviously probably his most serious, the most serious, like, deep films he ever made were with Ingmar Bergman. You know, I would probably right. argue a safe bet. And he did a lot of them. But even in the Ingmar Bergman films, there's a certain twinkle in Cedow's eyes. And, and, and when you get to some of these movies that almost burn... Uh, do allow him to be slightly humorous. Like, there's none of that really in the Seventh Seal. There's a there's a certain like quality that you get the feeling that Ming is probably not as and and when you see Needful Things, Ming is not as that far under the surface as it might initially seem. You know, yeah. with somebody like Cedow, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was. A, a, you guys would probably know better than I. Was there ever any discussions or rumblings of a sequel? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think they were. Oh. They tried to get it um, up and running at various different points, and there was a really poorly made. Uh, it, it wasn't that tied to this, although they tried to cash in on the flat on the Queen song by playing it in the in the trailers. There was a, a Sci-Fi Channel TV series that ran in like the mid two thousands. I want to say. Uh, like 2005 or thereabouts, and it was pretty worthless. It just, it looked like a sci-fi channel TV show and not Battlestar Galactica TV show, you know? It just seemed very cheap. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they wanted to, De Laurentiis wanted to do a trilogy like they, Lucas had announced with um, Star Wars, and Peter Wingard was really bummed because he swears that at the end of the movie, the hand that picks up Ming's ring is not Ming. It's Clytus. Well, that's always what I kind of like watching it this time. I thought, is that Clytus? There's no, there's no explanation for why he would have gotten off of the ship and off of the things, but he has a very kind of anticlimactic. He just, he disappears from the movie very quickly. Minus his eye bulging scene. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But I, I don't know how that would have worked out, but that uh, maybe like they did with, uh, you know, a certain emperor in Star Wars. I have no idea, but it was. Oh yeah. my gosh. I was going to say, I, if they could do that, if they could bring Sigourney Weaver back from DNA and oh Alien Resurrection. Lord, yeah. I, I also wondered if it could have been Prince Voltan trying to, he always had a thing for power, right? Well, maybe one of his minions just had that uh, life shot and shot it into his well, bulging well, Voltan doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would wear those like, like uh, satin gloves. <laughs> I just see his hand ripping right through it. In fact, the scene of him trying to put on satin gloves would be perfectly at home. This uh, what was that thing that uh, Flash was uh, flying at the end there? Was it kind of like a, a a jet ski in the air? What was that? Yeah, yeah. It looked yeah. like one of those things that sits out front of a like thrift store that kids put quarters in. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So what is your rating, Bill? Did you give a rating? I'm gonna no. So I, I was just saying, uh, comparative wise, I gave 2001 uh, an eight and a half. I I had written down I'm giving this an eight because this isn't. I, I'm I'm self-professed never been a superhero guy. I've actually seen very few of the superhero movies, but for this kind of film, I think this is the gold standard. I think if you want to go into kind of would be schlocky, smile, there's some adult jokes, there's some kid jokes, there's just a, a general silliness to the film, and you're not going in trying to see Kubrick, or you're not trying to see John uh, Carpenter like on a serious level, you just want to have some fun with it, I think this is an absolute go-to movie. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So it's eight, eight. Eight, eight, eight out of ten. Yeah, and I'm the same, and I eight. Uh I, I, and the one thing I would say is I think on a technical level, a, a technical meaning, there is a lot of craftsmanship, at least on the some of the acting and stuff and some of the way all the pieces come together. I think that's where the issue is, is that there wasn't always a, there wasn't as clear a driving force or most likely based on some of what Matt's been saying, that the driving forces were always butting heads. So like what, and you get that with some of the screenwriters talk about that, that what the Laurentis had in mind and what the director had in mind were sometimes at, at at odds, but I feel like individual pieces of this still have a lot of technical polish. It's just that what they're trying to make, it's like sometimes maybe hiring, you know, like Da Vinci to paint the side of a barn, you know, it seems like there's a lot of, of high technical qualities to make something look 
like it's retro made in 1935, you know? So we spent a million dollars to make something look like it's flying around on a string with sparks coming out of the back end of it. And so that's fascinating and kind of a little bit bewildering, but I still love it. And my kids really enjoyed it. And I think they enjoyed it as it was intended to be enjoyed. So I, you know, ultimately it's successful and it's a lot of fun. And I've rewatched this and it sounds like some of us, you know, Bill's, Bill's first time, but have rewatched this more than other more quote unquote serious or, uh, you know, ambitious sci-fi or fantasy pictures. And, and I, I, I like it. I, I do. I wish there had been a, a sequel. Yeah. I think now we should not get a sequel. I don't think, I don't think this movie can be made like this movie was now. I think yeah. anyone trying to do it, it would, it would come off very clunky. If, if they're going to make a new flash Gordon, they've got to take it. I don't know that they should, they need to take a different tact with it. But, um, I, I think and that they're the, trying to they're trying to there's a there's been a reboot in in the works for a couple of years now with the guys who made Overlord. Yeah, and I think oh. it could work, but I think the thing is you're going to have to not make it like this. You're going to have to leave Queen sure. and all that stuff behind because that's what makes this one iconic in a sense, even though it does clearly try to like replicate what happened in the 30s, you know. Yeah. So that's the same rating from four. That's pretty good. <laughs> and I didn't plan this with anybody. That's what I gave it. Yeah. Um, so to, to wrap up, Flash Gordon, definitely go check it out. Um, the Blu-ray I have, I don't know if it's still available. I got it like for a couple bucks. I think there's probably a better. I think Dave Roy was telling me that there's a pretty nice set out there, Blu-ray set. I do honestly think that this is a buy it kind of situation. Uh, maybe you want to watch it first to make sure it's your kind of movie. But if you enjoy uh, again, it does feel a little bit like a kid's movie to me. It, it, I'm not saying it's as good as some of these, but it, it belongs in the same universe as Wizard of Oz, as the you know Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It has that kind of feel to it more than it does Star Wars or Superman, in my opinion. So I think it's definitely a, a buy from my perspective. Uh, to wrap up, so Matt and Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a, it was a great time. Feel free to name drop another movie so we can bring you back to talk I was, about I was it. just about to say, <laughs> we're, we're going to throw the ball in their court, kind of a sci-ish fantasy horror for next time that you've always just had the, the inkling to want to do. Please let us know and we'll jump all over it. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I'll let, well, Jackson, you're the one, did you, yeah, you were the one who brought up Flash Gordon. Well, was it I? I can't remember. But You brought it up, but Jackson, Jackson was the one who jumped on it. Oh, Jackson's right. the one who jumped on it. That's right. That's right. Like so, on a grenade. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, yeah. This is, I think this is the most fun. This kind of like, um, this kind of campy thing I haven't seen any horror or any sci-fi stuff. That's kind of like this. That would be the same. Maybe the closest you could get to this, not necessarily the same genre, but something like bad taste might be fun to talk about. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would love to come back on sometime with you, dad, and, and talk with you guys about a sci-fi movie because, um, that's the thing that other than horror, I have the most fun talking about because it's, they kind of trade, uh, genre trappings. And as we saw with Flash Gordon and that memory, uh, erasing scene, sometimes there's some pretty horrifying ideas and even the stupidest movies. So, um, yeah, I've I'm had a great far time away from horror here. I'm going to throw a title out. Have you guys? I'm sure you've seen. I've seen Matt. I'm sure you've seen it. How about Starman, the John Carpenter movie? Oh yeah, I don't oh, think yeah. I've seen that. The other one I was thinking of that I've never seen. If you guys wanted to, that's do what's great about Bill. He's never seen any of these movies. It, that's no, so awesome. It, 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 <laughs> is, is, is Galaxy of Terror? 
Oh, I haven't seen that in a long time. I have, oh, I I've never seen, I've never seen that either. But I know Greg Morgan's also a big fan of Starman. Have you seen Starman, Jackson? I have not. I know more about it than like I've actually seen of it. I'm definitely interested in seeing that. And and I if I have yeah. something to talk about, I I would love to come back on. That was John Carpenter's apology for the thing to critics, yeah. Yeah. Aliens. yeah. <laughs> Which is funny, but I mean, I personally, I think they're both strong movies. I, you know, um, and, uh, or, or, I was gonna say, or forbidden world, forbidden world or galaxy of terror. Yeah. I'd even talk forbidden planet, you know, the, forbidden, the oh, forbidden planet. and there's Leslie Nielsen again, but we can figure that out at a different time. Um, I want to go ahead and give, uh, Matt and Jackson a chance to, plug anything you want to plug. I do want to say uh, uh, that I just listened to your episode of the best horror films of 2020 and yeah. it was excellent. And so many, it, it's a, it's a good episode to just take your pen and paper and write down. And I was impressed with, with all the movie ever. There was not a single movie that I wouldn't say, yeah, definitely go see it on the whole between everything you had. And you had some great number one. So um, that was, that was a great job. Well, thank you. So, Jackson, you want to plug the podcast, buddy? Yeah, check us out. We're uh, Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. Um, we're on everything. We have our own website, fatherandsonwatchhorrormovies.com, and, uh, or fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. We have a Twitter and everything. Yeah, we, we just love talking um, about uh, horror movies, and we've had Nathan on before. We've had Bill on before in several episodes, and those are some great discussions. Um, yeah, and we would love to, to have you listen. Yep, we got the guys from Real Talk coming on next week. So. And and, right. and we've talked before about possibly reviewing the Creep series, so that could be something to do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, and then, Bill, is there anything you want to plug? Well, on uh, Land of the Creeps, we're going to be doing the next one is random 2020 films because the one thing I wanted to say to Matt and Jackson is I'm sure your episode's awesome. I really look forward to watching it, but I'm holding off listening to anybody's top 20 list before I make mine. I want no undue influence. So I know the evil jelly guys did a really good one coming up. I have that in my queue as well. I just, I'm still in the midst. I still have a couple more to finish off. I still have to watch the wretched. Uh, I still have to watch empty man. i still have to watch um, platform before I do my final list. So I've got about seven to 10 to go. But I really look forward to you guys. It's always a quality, fun uh, listen. So everybody should listen to that. And just listen to Land of the Creeps and find me in the links. And let's go Packers. <laughs> and, of course, you can find us here at Phantom Galaxy. And on Twitter, it's Phantom, F-A-N-T-O-M, Galaxy. And uh, we have our – we've got several episodes. We've got this one. We've got the – first season of the x-files that we just did that would that went really well although it went very long and almost ended up land of the creep style something oh, wow. around the like i got some editing to do it about a three hours worth of stuff i've got my doppelganger tommy acting as me yes I, I can't i can't wait to just hear what you have to say about the tombs episode specifically the actor who plays him and, and his child bride we we did, I didn't I had a, I didn't want to bring up the child bride because I felt like I mentioned that he's just I I had a line something along the lines of like creepy in real life and all this episode yes because the child bride yes. thing is really weird that's almost a you could almost do an episode on that alone I think because it just I don't know to me it just so um I have a hard time you know like conceiving of a parent being like yeah go for it 
So oh th- that's the part that, you know, you look at Doug Hutchinson, you're like, okay, uh, I see why you're up for this, but I don't understand what the parents are. So that's a whole nother discussion. But we also have, yes. we are going to be doing a uh, best horror and a best sci-fi fantasy um, for, for uh, Phantom Galaxy. We're going to be doing the the horror one with, with Greg Bench and we'll have that coming up. And I think Victor... Uh, Rodriguez is going to come on uh, for the one that's awesome. more general. So uh, trying to catch up with the last few movies uh, there, but I um, we've also, we will, we'll have uh, another episode that will be more of the tales from the Phantom galaxy, a narrated episode. We've got some sci-fi stories this time. So again, Matt and Jackson, thanks so much. We'd love to have you back anytime. And we of course would love any time to, to come on over at father and son watch horror. And um, have you guys ever done the movie squirm? <laughs> No, we've <laughs> never done a squirm. And so we've been, yeah, we, we've we got, um, coming up in 2021, we've got a couple guests uh, lined up over the next few weeks that kind of have <clears throat> dictating what we're going to watch. But we would, I, I think it would be fun to do squirm. And if you want to do squirm, Ooh. Nathan, you're welcome to come on and talk yeah, to us. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure I really like it that much. I just remember it was a movie that traumatized <laughs> me. And I feel sometimes, see, that's the thing about this, and you probably you guys probably feel the same, particularly like when you get a movie that has nothing going for it, that's the hardest thing to talk about. But, but a, a good poster, movie, a good poster, yeah. But Squirm does, I mean, that's the thing, Squirm, Slugs, all that stuff. Why don't we just do things that crawl, you know? But yeah, some of those movies I can have as much fun or more fun talking about a legitimately bad movie than, oh, yeah. than a good one. So I'm good for that. Yeah, I haven't seen it in years. It'll be fun. But it gave me a fear of spaghetti for an extremely long time. <laughs> oh, long I'm sure. I am sure. So, yeah. well, that's uh, that's all I have. Again, thanks so much. And have a, have, a, have a great day. And this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop. A lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.